Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast and the first episode of 2022. We're looking to start the new year as we finish the last, interviewing authors, highlighting their work and sharing their stories. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please tell your colleagues or leave us a review and then sit back and enjoy our latest episode on positive negatives. So today's episode is another attempt to do something a little different, discussing studies united not by condition, but instead by their negative outcomes. I've chosen two different papers on wildly different topics, and the only common factor is that the authors have demonstrated that the therapies they trialled don't work. Now, treatment is a highly emotive topic in medicine and the field of inherited metabolic disease in particular, because effective treatments for many conditions simply don't exist. And when potential treatments are identified, proving efficacy in diseases with small patient numbers and poorly defined natural histories can be almost impossible. The challenges might be significant, but nevertheless, there are researchers across the world working to test the efficacy and safety of new therapies or treatment regimes all the time. But gold standard studies with high quality, randomised controlled trials in IMD are difficult. In fact, when I look back at the articles published in our 2020 print edition, Whilst we shared work on open label studies and reports on altered dosing and established disease, I think that there was only one RCT we published and that had a positive outcome. This paucity of gold standard trials likely reflects the field more than the journal and a quick look in MGM yielded similar results. Beyond our field, we know that despite the fact that between a quarter or a third of studies have negative outcomes, those that make it to print report an almost 90% success rate. Even apparently positive studies may selectively report outcomes or undertake so-called p-hacking to deliver a significant result. People just want to say what they're doing works and not discuss work that is less than successful. But why is it important to share negative results? This was a question that I put to the guests of today's episode. I think publishing of negative results is equally as important as publishing of positive results. Um, maybe especially in the field of rare diseases where we do not have many treatment options, it's really important to um, really investigate suggested therapeutic drugs and interventions with well-designed studies, of course. So we don't go around giving our patients drugs that do not work. And I guess sometimes patients are given treatments, vitamins, cofactors, where we don't really have good evidence. But also so other researchers do not go ahead and repeat the same study. So to don't waste funds, for example. Yeah, that's some thoughts on the topic. I guess to make the more general point about publication bias and trying to redress that balance. So we, of course, are very grateful to the JMD here for playing their part in that. And naturally, we all want to see when we do treatment trials, we want to see positive results. We want to see evidence of benefit of a treatment. And that's very exciting and provides hope for patients and families. But equally, we want to make sure that if there is a negative result or no evidence of benefit, that, that information is out there. And I think in, in rare diseases, you know, there's already enough challenges trying to develop good quality evidence for the efficacy of treatments. That I think there's a situation where because of those challenges, when there is paucity of treatment options, and then you find some small studies demonstrating certain positive results, but not necessarily well replicated, there's a tendency to run with that. And I think there's a risk that you might say that only the outliers get published. And so when you have an opportunity like we did here to run what we hope is a relatively good, relatively large, methodologically pretty sound study, and you can show that there isn't uh, evidence of benefit, then we need to get that information out there. And we have to consider what the impact is on the patients in the end. And, you know, the general point is there that you have a risk that if you don't show what the 
um, effect of the treatment is really you have patients um, potentially continuing to expose themselves to a treatment that provides no benefit, may have adverse effects and at considerable cost. Basically, uh, we were in a situation where the patients with bucopolysaccharide diseases in the Sampalipa were actually able to buy uh, their own drug products uh, over the counter. In the US, they were actually getting it supplied from the European Union, paying a vast amount of money for it, by the way. It was costing them something like £2,000 a kilo and then feeding it to their kids at very, very high doses. And there was no evidence whatsoever out there to suggest that this was effective or not. So I think for us, even publishing negative data to show that this product did not work was actually hugely beneficial for the patients because parents were spending £2,000 per kilo uh, per patient on this, which, which doesn't sound like a lot, except that typically they were taking something like 25 grams a day and with no evidence that it was actually efficacious in patients at all. So for us, it was a no-brainer. We had to do the study. Nicolene Loken, Navagosh and Brian Bigger there sharing their thoughts on why it's important to publish negative results. And after all that preamble, let's go to the first study. And we're staying with the mitochondrial therapies theme from the 39th episode, discussing resveratrol in mitochondrial myopathies. Dr. Nicolene Loken and her team at the Copenhagen Neuromuscular Centre did this work, and I began by asking her why they chose to study resveratrol. We chose to look at the compound because of the preclinical studies yeah, in animals and in, uh, in cell studies. Mitochondrial function has been upregulated in fibroblasts and in different animal models uh, by stimulation of mitogenesis for once, and, but also by its antioxidative effects. It has been suggested to, to protect the mitochondria. Um, so that was one of the reasons why we chose to, to investigate the compound, but also because we at different conferences have heard other researchers uh, suggesting this as a therapeutic drug for our patients. So, so we really wanted to see, okay, does it work? And I mean, you've, you've talked about the idea that there were studies published previously or certainly anecdotal reports published re- previously um, suggesting there was a, a benefit. I think... It's notable that within IMD, there is a paucity of good quality studies. How did you go about trying to answer the question whether this drug does or doesn't work? Yeah, um, I think it's really important that we try to make as good evidence as possible. And of course, the golden standards RCTs, because we do know that there is a placebo effect that has been shown multiple times. So that was why we chose that design. Yeah, and do it double blinded, of course, um, on top of that. Yeah, because our primary outcome was exercise, it's really important that the investigator and the researchers are blinded as well. So we do not cheer <laughs> on them uh, differently um, when they receive placebo and when they receive the, the active drug. And of course, it's a really rare disorder, um, especially in, in Denmark. We do not have that many. Um, we are a small country. Um, so, of course, uh, it's a small study. And we did, of course, do... Um, power calculations with regards to our primary outcome, heart rate, during our exercise test. And based on that calculation, aid would be enough to see an, a clinical meaningful effect, at least. Um, it's good this, this study, albeit small, was, was certainly um, powerful, for want of a better word. You looked at, um, I think it's 11 patients in the end, across a variety of different mitochondrial disorders causing mitochondrial myopathy. 
you didn't see a significant change. And there was one candidate who saw some very positive benefits in one domain only. Is this the final word? Can we park this and say, um, as Veritel is, is not something that should be offered to our patients? Um, because there is still that, I think, tendency where people will have where they're in a disease where there are no treatments to say, well, if it does no harm, shouldn't I just take it anyway? Can we can we leave this and reassure our patients that there's no value or is more work required? I think the most striking to me when doing this study was that of the 10 that completed, there were 11 included, but only 10 completed. Only one said you could feel a subjective effect, and that was a minor effect, and it was not reproducible in, in our objective outcomes. The other nine really didn't feel anything at all. Some of them even had some side effects, not severe at all, but some minor stuff. And none of them would like to continue. And I think that's really important to highlight the patient perspective as um, that is the most important thing. We're not here to treat uh, small biochemistry uh, findings, outcomes. We're here to, to treat our patients. And, and if they do not feel that this is effective, then of course, we should not go around and give them. And, and of course, all supplements have some kind of side effects, even though this is not registered as a drug, but a, a neutral supplement, it has some side effects. So I, I don't think I would give it to any patient just to be sure. And But um, to answer your question, if this is the final word, and it's difficult to say because there is many discussing bioavailability of this supplement, resveratrol, and and maybe I cannot rule out that we could see a better effect if the bioavailability was increased tremendously. So uh, the new thing in research I've read is that people are trying to do nanocapsuling of the of the drug. And if they really can increase bioavailability, and especially in the muscles in our patients, maybe they would have a better effect. But based on our findings here, I would not recommend to do further research with this drug as it is now. Yeah, no, well, congratulations on a really nicely designed study. It's fantastic to get an answer, even if it perhaps isn't the one people wanted to hear. But I, I do think there's a lot of utility in finding the answer that says, we don't need to offer this. You don't need to go out and buy this. And actually taking this might make you feel worse. So so please don't do it. And, and hopefully it allows, like you say, Pete, the time and space for people to move on and mm. and look for, look for other treatments. So it, there's, there's a lot of, I think, value in the work that you've done. And I'm pleased that you're able to publish it with us. Thank you. Now for something completely different, as they used to say on Monty Python. Our second paper really couldn't be further from that one as we move from mitochondrial disease to mucopolysaccharidosis, notably MPS3 or San Filippo syndrome a devastating lysosomal storage disorder with no current therapy. I was fortunate enough to speak with two of the authors, Dr. Brian Bigger and Dr. Anuba Ghosh. So we're talking today about your paper, High Dose Genistine in San Filippo Syndrome, a randomised control trial. I suppose it'd be best to begin at the beginning. Genistine is something that I've seen turning up in journal titles for the last decade or so. What exactly is it? It's been turning up in journal titles for the last uh, five decades, actually. Um, so genistine is one of the components of soya products. Uh, so it's, it's quite an active component. It sits right on the borderline of foodstuff and pharmaceutical in that at very high doses, it does actually have a biochemical and potentially a clinical effect. Now, it for many years was thought to be the active component in soya protein and soya food, 
that conferred a benefit on individuals who lived in the Far East who would have a very high soy-based diet in uh, reducing their cancer risk. And so as a result, uh, it was tested in multiple clinical trials. It has actually multiple effects. It's quite a dirty drug uh, in that sense. So it primarily functions as a, a protein tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Unlike many of the products that are out there as anti-cancers, which typically only target one growth factor receptor, this one targets multiple. And then on the other side, it's actually an agonist of the estrogen receptor. So it has some functions as an isoflavone, so an estrogen mimic. It is, in fact, approved as a product to, to deal with premenstrual flushes uh, as, a, as an alternative to hormone replacement therapy in the U.S. marketed as Fosteum. Um, and it has multiple other actions, um, you know, as a cell cycle arrester and so on. And it, it, it also functions as an anti-inflammatory. And it's very hard to tease out which of these actions is actually the primary action and which actions are subordinate. It also, confusingly, it exists in two forms. So genistane aglycone, which is the pure form of the product, which looks a little bit like estrogen. Um, and then it's often turned into a sugar, uh, genistein, and supposed to genistein, which is usually a glycoside sugar. And it can also be broken down um, and glucuronidated in the body, at which point it becomes much less active. So again, there are, there are, there's confusion over the use of this product. Often it was used as soy farm, uh, which is a mixture of genistein uh, glycoside and genistein aglycone. And the action of the body to metabolize the product as it goes through your gut actually changes it into something else as you go through. So it's a multi-action product, we say. This was a, a big study. It even had its own acronym. I think it was called the, the Genesis Study. Is that right? And how did it actually come about? Well, uh, actually, it, it was very interesting. We, we were... Uh, I was basically bullied into running a, a mouth study uh, at a very, very early stage by uh, one of the clinicians, Professor Ed Wraith, who I worked with at the time, who sadly deceased since then. And he had been working with this uh, very interesting chap from Poland called Gregor's Venction. And Gregor's actually had a child who was uh, affected by polar disease. And because he was a professor of uh, microbiology, he'd actually just changed his entire lab round to looking at uh, potential treatments for his daughter. And uh, he, he lit upon all of these, these various different food supplement products that he decided he'd try and check out in his lab. And genistin was just one of the products that I think he'd tried in the lab to see if they could try and block the natural production of, of substrate in this disease. So in, in San Felipe disease, you have a missing lysosomal enzyme, which typically breaks down long-chain polysaccharides of some kind or another, usually uh, glycosaminoglycans. And his hypothesis was that if we could reduce the body's natural production of these glycosaminoglycans, that we could actually improve the outcomes in patients. So uh, he'd done the study in cells, shown that Genistin could reduce um, gag storage in fibroblasts from lots of different patients uh, with MPS disease. So MPS 1, 2, 3, I think he'd done all of them, actually. And we were very skeptical of this work, actually, if I'm honest. So we did two mouse studies. One was a very short-term study in which we found that, that Genistin was able to reduce gag storage in mice. And then we did another much longer study uh, with two different arms um, and two different sexes. So feeding mice either a soy-free diet or a diet that had uh, that was high in genistin. 
Um, so it had a very high dose of genistin because we were interested in targeting the brain. So we knew that only about 10% of the product would cross the blood-brain barrier. So we went for a dose that was 10 times what was effective in the liver. And in that study, to our great surprise, we had this poor Polish student who uh, came to Manchester for three years and spent most of her time, uh, I think, looking at histology of these mice, uh, blinded, so totally unable to know whether the mice was actually uh, affected or not. Um, and she had to score them all. And on that basis, it became very clear that there was about a 30% reduction of the gag storage in the brain. And there was also a, quite a significant effect on inflammation as well. So it was only about between 10 and 20% effect on reduction of inflammation in the brain, looking at things like astrocytes and microglia. But it was very significant. And as a result of that, we kind of thought, well, actually, you know, there is something here. We really need to do a study. So as soon as we published that mouse study showing that high-dose genistin might be effective, despite the fact that there had been a, a placebo-controlled clinical trial run uh, very close to uh, the publication of our data, showing that low doses of uh, soy farm uh, containing relatively low doses of genistin and glycan were utterly ineffective in patients, they had a small biochemical effect in the periphery, but they could show nothing in the, in the brain. Despite the publication of that paper, because we were using much higher doses, everyone jumped on it and the patient community decided to hire an individual to basically procure uh, genistin A glycone for them. This was in the US. And then they proceeded to give it to their children. So we were very, very concerned by this. We obviously said to them, you know, look, this is, this is really not a, a wise idea. We really need to be looking at this in a, in a fashion which is uh, firstly, monitored by a clinician, and secondly, scientifically monitored as well. And we can actually monitor the outcomes of, in patients. But they were they were adamant that they wanted to do this. They didn't have any other therapy. They were desperate, um, and so that was kind of the basis on which they were proceeding. So, you know, the only way that we could have stopped them is by informing the FDA that that this had been classified as a drug in the UK by the MHRA. Uh, which as soon as we discussed this trial, by the way, with the MHRA, they immediately told us that they would classify this as a drug. Uh, and for obvious reasons, you know, the definition of a drug is that it has a biochemical and pharmacological effect. If it doesn't, it's a food supplement. Simple as that. So following on from that, we, we were aware that uh, many families were using this widely in the US. There had been a report, I think, trying to encapsulate some of the uh, some of the outcomes from uh, from that really focusing on the safety and tolerability of it in that population where it was being used uh, in the open label and showing that it seemed to be well tolerated. Um, but that study was not really geared to look at efficacy. And so we decided to go ahead and try and test that more formally. So what we did was to develop a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized controlled trial we recruited 20 participants with, with MPS3, and they were randomized to either receive genistein in high dose, so 160 milligrams per kilogram per day in two divided doses, or to a placebo for a period of 12 months. Um, and then after that, we had a, an open label extension phase, so all of the participants continue to receive genistein for a further 12 months. Um, and what we looked at, so the, our primary endpoint uh, was actually a biochemical outcome measure, um, and we were looking at heparin sulfate concentration. So this is the, the sugar, the glycosamine glycan that accumulates in San Filippo syndrome. 
And we were really interested in the neurological effects. So we were looking at this in the CSF. So we were doing lumbar punctures at baseline and then 12 months and 24 months. Um, and that was our primary outcome measure to look at the difference between the uh, baseline and 12 months of the heparin sulfate in CSF. And we looked at it also in the plasma and the urine and the total urine plaque aminoglycans as well. And we also looked at the neurocognitive profiles and some quality of life measures. And we did some actigraphy using ActiWatches. And the reason for that is really to look at the behavioral phenotype and, and the sleep disturbance that we know is very important in MPS3. And what we found was that there really was not any appreciable difference in the, in the biochemical uh, outcome measures. So in terms of the primary endpoint, the CSF heparin sulfate, from baseline to 12 months, we, we saw may, maybe a very, very slight reduction in the Geniston group and a slight increase in the placebo group. But that reduction that we saw in the Geniston group was not what you could consider clinically meaningful. So if you look at other studies of enzyme replacement therapy or gene therapy in, in MPS3, they, they demonstrate much greater reductions in heparin sulfate. And even in the cases with, uh, with CNS-directed enzyme therapy, we'd seen greater reductions in, in CSF heparin sulfate without clear evidence of a, of a clinical benefit. So we saw really no clinically meaningful difference in the CSF heparin sulfate, and it was not different between the two groups. Um, so there's no statistically significant difference. And similarly, with the, with the other biomarkers, with the plasma, we saw a decline over time uh, in both groups, but no significant difference between the two. Um, the only biochemical outcome measure where we just about saw a difference was in the total urine glycosaminoglycan, um, which was maybe about 30% more of a reduction in the uh, in the Geniston group, and that was just statistically significant. So maybe a, a degree of evidence that there's a small reduction in the periphery in the heparin sulfate uh, or in the total glycosaminoglycan, but not in the primary outcome measure. And when we looked at the neurocognitive profiles, we found really that the trajectory was almost identical to what we've seen before in natural history studies of Santalipo. So there was no evidence, even over the course of the two years, uh, of any change in uh, the clinical status of the patients in terms of their cognitive profiles. So I think we were really pretty clear that there was no discernible benefit from Geniston in this population. I mean, that's fairly emphatic. I take it this is a, this is a case of this definitely doesn't work or is no one's put a little paragraph at the end saying more work is needed, have they? So, so we did look at the dose that we gave of Genestin because there was obviously a concern that perhaps we weren't going high enough. But you'll notice that the dose that we've used in the study, which is 160 milligrams per kilo per day, which is really a very high dose uh, for a child to be receiving, is also the same dose as we used in mice. Typically, when you go from a mouse study to a human study, you usually drop the dose by four or five fold. We didn't do that because of the evidence that we saw in, in patient samples from the study that had been run in the US using higher doses, where we had been able to measure genistin in the blood from those patients and show that actually uh, there was more glucuronidation in those patients. So humans appear to have a higher glucuronidation rate, which means that your plasma level of genistin, a glycone, is lower in humans than it is in mice. 
And so we actually kept the same dose in humans as we did in mice. Now, the no adverse effect level for uh, genistinate glycone that is believed to be the no adverse effect level for humans, certainly in dogs, this is the case, is about 500 milligrams per kilo per day. So we didn't really feel that we could go any higher uh, with those dosages. And if you do go higher, you end up with some pretty significant effects with uh, a very serious lethargy and so on. So we didn't feel that there was any option to go any higher on dose. And it's very clear from our data from this that we were detecting what should have been functional levels of genistin, both in the uh, plasma and in the CSF. So the product is present. It's having a biochemical effect only in the urine, and it's present in an amount which should cause an effect in these patients, and yet we're not seeing any clinical outcome. So to me, that is pretty conclusive, that there's not much more work that could be done to support the use of genistinoglycan in some lipo patients, certainly not for the brain disease. To your knowledge, has this helped families move away from genistin or are, are, are people still clinging on to the hope that, that there is something there in, in a disease where there is very little hope, unfortunately? Uh, well, it's a mixed bag, um, as ever. So some families have thanked us for the work that we've done. They're obviously bitterly disappointed that it hasn't worked, but it's, I think, enabled them to move on to other potential treatments. Others are less accepting. And I think all we can do is to continue to provide them with evidence to suggest that it's probably not going to benefit their kids. It's unlikely to do much harm, but it's a cost that they might be able to do without. Um, but I think, you know, parents feel, you know, they're, they're unable to do anything about it. So they feel they need to do something. But this is not a good thing to be putting your money into. It's a shame to finish on a negative note. Now you've drawn a line under genistin. Are there more promising things in the works? And Nava mentioned ERT and gene therapy. Are they a going concern in San Filippo? Well, I think it's been uh, extremely challenging developing effective treatments for, for San Filippo. And we have seen a, a number of clinical trial programs of CNS-directed uh, enzyme therapy come to an end without any evidence of, of benefit. So I think the focus has now shifted to, to gene therapy approaches. Um, in Manchester, of course, we've been conducting a, a study of lentiviral stem cell modified gene therapy in MPS3A, which Brian has been involved in. And from the clinical side, my colleagues, uh, Rob Wynn and Simon Jones, are the in investigators in, in that study. And I think, Brian, you, you will know more about this as well. I think we're planning to present some of our early results at the Lysosomal Disease Network conference in the coming weeks. Yes, that's right. So there'll be an update on that trial, uh, in fact, at the, what's called the World Conference, which is on lysosomal diseases in February of this year, uh, where we'll be presenting some of the trial data. The, the biochemical outcomes in these patients are actually remarkable. We hope that the clinical outcomes will match those, um, but it's still very, very early days because this is actually quite a slowly progressive disease. Uh, so patients typically, uh, from a neurological perspective, develop on a relatively normal trajectory up to the age of about two to two and a half before they start to fall off from uh, normal uh, developmental quotients. And then they drop away really very rapidly from that trajectory. There are uh, a number of trials using adeno-associated viral vectors as well, which are out there, um, both in MPS3A and MPS3B, which may offer some solution as well. And there are other trials on the, on the horizon uh, looking at tagged enzymes, so enzymes which can cross the blood-brain barrier, 
There are other substrate reduction therapy approaches, and there may be anti-neuroinflammatory approaches which are beneficial as well. Uh, we recently published some data showing that uh, IL-1, which is one of the key inflammatory mediators which stimulates the inflammasome, which is involved in chronic inflammation, is uh, elevated in uh, MPS3A and appears to be a key mediator. So when we actually knock it out, we're able to completely rescue the behavioral phenotype and the mouse model of disease. And uh, I know that there's been a study in the US using anakinra, which is the approved drug product equivalent of the antagonist to IL-1 receptor, so to IL-1, which is IL-1 receptor antagonist. And uh, we're awaiting the outcome of that trial, actually, to see whether there's been any benefit in those patients. So uh, there is some hope on the horizon. And I don't think that the options for substrate reduction therapy are dead. I just don't think genistin was that solution. We know that Miglostat, for example, for Gaucher disease provides a really a pretty good approved drug product, uh, which does seem to give some benefit in patients, especially when given in conjunction with ERT. So combination therapies like that can be very beneficial. But genistin just wasn't the product for, for this particular disease, unfortunately. So there you have it. Two negative studies, but a positive message. This work needs to be done. These treatments have to be considered, studied, and if need be, disregarded, so that we can continue to offer our patients an evidence-based approach to their care. All that remains is for me to thank my guests, Nicolene, Brian and Naba, and to remind you that these articles are available via the journal website or from the links in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear more from us on topics such as novel therapies in mitochondrial disease and LSD heterozygosity in neurodegenerative disease, then just search for JMD Podcast wherever you like to listen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.